Hallelujah. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that you provided for us today. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that the entrance into the Holy of Holies has been made through Jesus Christ, our high priest who went before us, securing for us, Lord, communion with you through his shed blood and sacrifice on Calvary and perpetual intercession before your throne on our behalf. We worship and praise you, God, that these songs that we sing today are not a mere exercise, but instead that they are reality, Lord, looking forward to their final fulfillment when we sing in one accord with all the saints, Lord Jesus, gathered before your throne, worthy as the Lamb, Lord, forever and ever, when the fullness of what your uh, death on Calvary, dear Jesus, has purchased will be our experience, and we achieve, Lord, perfect communion and reunion, Lord Jesus, according to the way that you have designed us, For your glory and namesake, Father, to give honor and praise to your great name. So we celebrate today, Lord, the mighty work on Calvary that has achieved for us our salvation and has granted to us, Lord, meaning even for this service. I pray as we open your scriptures now, Lord Jesus, the unsearchable riches and the depth of your wisdom that's therein contained, I pray that you would draw forth principles, promises, God, a revelation to our heart and mind. I pray that you would fix our attention upon the things of you and conform our affections to love and appreciate and long for the things of God. I pray, Lord, that you would shape and correct and equip us for the work of the ministry through the power of your scriptures today. Lord, if you do any of this, it will be because the Holy Spirit has seen fit to use these feeble means today. Namely, Lord, the unqualified servant that gives your word, and, Lord, the often feeble ears that hear. We pray, Lord, that you would transcend the frailty of our human limitations and do something supernatural in the delivery of your word so that each one of us, by its power, might be conformed unto your image, Lord, a little more today, even as by the Spirit of God. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. This morning... It is such a privilege and it is such a refuge per the theme of our message last week to open up the scriptures and to receive their instruction today. Just a reminder for you as you're turning to Matthew 26, Psalm 62, our passage last week, David personalizes and exclusively declares that God alone is his soul or his soul waits in silence, that he alone is his salvation. God alone is his only rock, his salvation, his fortress. He reiterates this as if it were a chorus in verses 5 and 6. God alone, O my soul, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock, my fortress, my salvation. I shall not be shaken on God, rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. I'm reminded today that that kind of certainty, assurance, and exclusivity that David connected with as he sang his song is available to us, especially through his word. Where do we know my Lord, my rock, my fortress, my foundation, my salvation, if not through his declared infallible, powerful word? And so to his word we turn this morning. In Matthew 26... The events immediately leading up to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection continue to unfold. The title of this morning's message is Prophetic Illustrations. There are details in the text, and I submit to you, each and every one of them serve to highlight prophecies that have gone before, and the events and their power that is revealed in these moments where Jesus is fulfilling what has been prophesied of old in the course of redemptive history and satisfying the terms of our salvation, bearing the wrath of a holy God and preparing to go to that place of sacrifice and ultimate humiliation where He will bear in His sufferings the weight of our sin. And these things become even more apparent to us as we notice perhaps some of the details that would be easily missed in a cursory reading. This morning it will be my attempt to highlight a few of prophetic illustrations in Matthew 26 that underscore what Jesus is about to do in His work of redemption. So if you're there with me in Matthew 26, I encourage you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And as we open the Scriptures, let us set our mind on verses 14 
through 29 this morning. Follow me as I declare God's word. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The record of events immediately leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are an absolute flurry of activity in the Gospels. Many things are going on at once, and they're captured in some of these passages and moments in th- throughout the synoptics and into John. For instance, in verse 26, verses 1 through 4, just reminding you, Jesus had finished all these sayings, and there's something of a note of conclusion in His formal teaching ministry. And he says to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So the book so far of Matthew, 25 chapters have been used to record the events leading up to now. But now the rest of these lengthy chapters, 26, 27, and on into 28, will record a flurry of activity. Events that surround the most important work that he has come to accomplish when he goes to the cross cross and his subsequent resurrection. Jesus says in verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. It's as if you could insert the uh, word meanwhile between verses 2 and 3. Meanwhile, then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. So the plot thickens, does it not? Literally so, in verse 4. They plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they said nothing, or but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And then there's a scene that opens in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, where Jesus receives by uh, the woman we later realize is identified as Mary in the book of John. As I recall, and she pours expensive oil on him. Meanwhile, there's preparations that, that immediately follow uh, Judas Iscariot, who goes to the chief priest and negotiate a price for Jesus' own betrayal and so on. As we see all this activity, what are we to learn from it? Well, from the perspective of an ignorant or casual observer, all these events might seem inconsequen- inconsequential, perhaps chaotic, and of course tragic as they unfold. But from the vantage point of prophetic expectation and sovereign understanding, however, each detail I submit to you glows with supernatural significance. And this is where the Old Testament helps us and the text today points us as we look more closely at what is going on. These are not random random acts of cause and effect in the course of Jesus losing control of the 
crowds that followed him, and then all of the uh, tables begin to turn. But instead, according to God's predestined, perfect, and precise plan, each event and each detail is taking place according to God's sovereign foreordination. Though Jesus himself faced unfathomable anguish and dread of the painful embrace of the Father's will to crush him at this time, he knows what is coming. He has known this from before time began. He has prepared himself through the course of events to go to the ultimate of crushing anguish as he endures the cup of God's wrath that he must drink down to the dregs in order for him to receive the reward of his sufferings, the justification of all the elect. And this weighs heavy on him and we see this soon as he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and we see the symbolic abandonment of even his disciples who are unwilling or able to stay awake for him, with him for even one hour as he toils in anguish and prayer pleading with his Father if there be any way for these circumstances, these events that he must face to pass him, if that cup could pass, may it be so. Nevertheless, he says, not my will, but thine be done. So this is the mental state and this is the weight of stress and anguish that Christ himself is facing, an unfathomable burden indeed you and I will never understand. Yet in spite of this anguish and dread of this painful embrace, of what he is about to do, Jesus himself nevertheless takes patient time and careful note and specific instruction to highlight in his awareness through his teaching and preparation for what will soon come. He shows his disciples details about God's will in the events that are transpiring before their very eyes. Sovereign insight and divine knowledge is readily available on Christ's lips through His words and as He continues to mercifully and patiently instruct His disciples right up until the bitter end. He is pointing them and today the attentive reader to eternal glories in these moments again and again. The reality of this appointment, the power of this moment in history, this significant prescribed event and the confluence, therefore, of all that uh, has been recorded in redemptive history that preceded it is summarized and encapsulated in this phrase. The teacher says, my time is at hand. When Jesus says, my time is at hand, those five words contain within, within them all the events and all of the meaning of the events that surrounds our text today and that accompanies the truth of our salvation. These words accompanied instructions for the use of a host home for the Passover that Jesus and his disciples would observe uh, shortly. These words Jesus gave uh, in commanding that this home be set aside and also in practicing, fulfilling that dutifully this feast right on the heels, and there was importance in that as well. These uh, words had accompanied the preaching of John the Baptist, that is, my time is at hand, or that basic idea, that sense of kingdom imminence had gone before in the words of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, as well as in the teaching, testimony, ministry of Jesus Christ. And now, that which was at hand, if you will, or about to take place, immediate, uh, immediately was unfolding before the eyes and ears of those who surrounded Christ at the time. Now these events and reactions and this moment-by-moment circumstances are serving to spotlight the significance of Jesus' fulfillment of redemptive revelation, now reaching its climax and apex as He goes to the cross. Let me give you three examples this morning under this heading Three prophetically significant details recurring in the text. They focus on three things, three illustrations. The first is bread, the second is money, and the third is sacrifice. Three prophetically significant details recurring in our text. The first we will study is the significance of bread. The second we will consider is the significance of money in the text. And the third is the significance of sacrifice. First of all, bread. Returning to our text today, notice in verses 17 through 19, 
this feast to which Jesus refers. He says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciple records, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. I want you you to notice, as we look closely at these verses, this kind of sense of transition and emergency and pressing urgency that is taking place at these moments. This isn't something that was pre-planned. It was taking place. A bunch of RSVPs go out and a lot of people plan to celebrate for a long period of time at an established place. But instead, these moments are much more transient, if you will. Jesus is borrowing a house, if you will, uh, as, as touching his humanity. In fact, he owns all things and we even see his authority in commanding the use of it. But nevertheless, this was something that seemed to be happening almost on the fly. I submit to you there is purpose in this, and it has to do with the significance of bread. Even more specifically, the significance of unleavened bread. Turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures to Exodus chapter 12. You see, there was a significant event that happened long before this moment in redemptive history that was also marked by urgency, by a sense of, we have to get out of here soon, that there are significant things that are happening very quickly. We have to pay close attention to the instructions surrounding them so we do not miss their significance and so that we can be obedient to the intent of what is going on or to to the commands that are coming from our leader. This, of course, happened in the Exodus itself. In Exodus 12, verses 17 through 20, Moses is giving instructions from the Lord to the people. And among them we find, You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And then we have instructions about keeping the feast of unleavened bread. The specifics continue, verse 18. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Very significant that the memory of what unleavened bread represented would stay with the people. There are uh, strict punishments if they didn't observe this feast. This communicates to us something powerfully significant was connected to bread in this sense, unleavened bread. Whether he is a sojourner or native in the land, uh, everyone is to celebrate this feast. Verse 20, you shall eat nothing leavened. But in all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Now if we turn over perhaps a page, but still in this chapter, we see some of the significance related to this picture, this symbolic imagery of unleavened bread. Continuing to read in verse 29, we pick up on the story. God's deliverance of His people. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborns of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among the people both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent. There's that key word, urgency, with the people, and send them to send them out of the land in haste. Another key word, urgency and haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. And note verse 34, so the people took their dough, Before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And you know the rest of the story. They took off for the promised land even that night. And here we have, ages and ages later, the absolute fulfillment of the events that that night signified on the moment when Israel was about to be delivered from their captor represented by Pharaoh and their condition 
represented by slavery. In the very same way, that symbol is fulfilled in Matthew 26, where right now, with a sense of urgency, with a sense of haste, there are late coming preparations for partaking in the feast of unleavened bread. Why? Because once again, the people of God are on the threshold, they're on the precipice of their own salvation and deliverance, this time from their captor, the devil, and from their condition, sin. This right here in the text, this detail about the celebration of unleavened bread, the celebration of that feast, immediately followed by the Passover, is instructive to us. It teaches us that the fulfillment of the command in Exodus 12 can actually take place in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, and we celebrate it ourselves every time we gather here and partake in communion. As Christ later actually changes the uh, orientation of the feast of Passover to include or to be exclusively the body, his body represented by bread and his blood represented by the cup. The unleavened bread and these preparations in haste upon the imminent expectation of God's deliverance from bondage communicate to us that freedom is just around the corner. They remind us that because of the events that are about to transpire, pay pay close attention, something significant is going on here, a moment in history, a a landmark by which you will build altars to remember in the future is happening before your eyes, and beyond it is covenant sealed promises. Do you remember Canaan and the land promise and all that it represented, a new nation, a testimony of His glory? So this urgency and this haste communicates to us a fulfillment of what Exodus 12 looked forward to. The children of God and the uh, children of Israel at that time, they took their dough and were ready to go even before it was leavened. And all of this is recorded for us in their history. And then we turn to Matthew 26 and we see these sort of time signatures in the text that communicate to us the same kind of immediacy this imminence and this urgency. Jesus has said, after just two days, the Passover is coming. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. It's happening now. It's upon us. Pay close attention. It's almost here. The uh, plot to take over his life or, or the plot to take his life uh, begins to unfold in earnest. They plotted together, verse 4, to arrest him by stealth and to kill him, but they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The idea is that the next available window of opportunity, we will uh, enact our plans, that from the wicked who are playing into the hands of God and the destruction of Christ himself. Verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Preparations are being made for an event, namely Christ's burial, that would take place very shortly. Verse 18, he said, again, my time is at hand. He goes on to say throughout the course of this chapter, in verse 31, for instance, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So trying events beyond what the disciples could even bear to imagine, are taking place within hours. Verse 34, he goes on, Truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, he warns Peter of his own denial of him. And then finally, as we mark these time signatures in the text, we see in verse 45 that his disciples, he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, here's the phrase, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. I highlight these details to show you that the significance of unleavened bread is illustrative for us. It reminds us that Christ was about to partake or about to embark upon the deliverance of His people. And the same sense of urgency is in the text as it was all the way back in Exodus 12. Imagine if you had been a faithful Jew at this time. If you had learned from your father and mother by the instruction of keeping the feast of Passover, its meaning and its expectation. 
Imagine the joy that was about to flood into your heart when you realized through your Messiah going to the cross of Calvary to be that Passover lamb, that that which was prophesied thousands of years before is now taking place in time. I cannot imagine what that feeling must have been, but perhaps we can if we compare it to our own salvation. That wave of relief, utter joy and first love reality that we feel when we are released from the bondage of our own sin unto praising the Lord, from embracing His death for our salvation. This kind of thing would soon wash upon the faithful as they realize that these events are taking place in real time as the Lord has sovereignly ordained. Secondly, under the significance of bread, we see an occasion for betrayal, and bread actually factors in here too. Verse 20, When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, speaking of Jesus. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, One after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. I was reading some history about this event and typical Passover protocol. And what was likely taking place is they were actually physically eating bread. And Jesus pointed to the man who dipped in, or indicated that the man who dipped in the dish with his bread, if you will, and partook, was indeed the one who would betray him. Now this may seem, again, inconsequential and insignificant to you, but in light of prior prophecy, it indeed is not. In John 13, 18, don't turn there yet, but in Psalm 41, you could start turning there. In John 13, 18, Jesus identifies with Psalm 41 as a messianic prophecy which tells about his own betrayal and this very moment that is taking place. It involves bread, and we see this actually prophesied all the way back in the Psalms. Verse 5, My enemies say of me in malice, and so here we see, again, just a reminder, David, now singing in the messianic first person, if you will, these words are best fitted for Christ's own lips. My enemies will say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Listen, verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Again, verse 9, the betrayal of, of Jesus, the Messiah, is so acute, it's, it's, so clo- it's so close to home, it affects him so personally, that it's even to this extent, even my close friend in whom I trusted, Judas, we find him to be, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The significance of bread in this instance is powerful. Not only was Jesus sharing in the bread that represented his own body in the final Passover before its fulfillment with 12 privileged friends and one total rejected it and looked for opportunity to gain a few shekels of silver at his expense, but Christ had also delivered the bread of life to God, or Jesus was about to deliver the bread of life to his people, and his power to do so was represented when he fed 4,000, when he fed 5,000, and you can bet Judas was there. Judas shared in the miraculous multiplication by God in flesh, taking bread and feeding thousands. He shared in the bread of these most intimate meals, not just at this moment, but every time the disciples had sat down and broken bread. Can you imagine the great privilege of sharing meal after meal and communing with the Lord of glory and being one of only a select privileged few to do so and then to turn your back in betrayal on that man? You had shared bread with him. In our culture today, it's hard to realize the significance of some of these pictures. For us, eating is just, I don't know, just something we do in haste to get on to the next thing that we do. So if you're like me in the morning, you might eat your breakfast in the truck on the way to work, or you might heat up the quickest meal 
and you don't take much time off, and we don't take much time in this culture to appreciate that moment. Oh, just imagine the exact opposite. You got a better picture of the culture in which Jesus lived. Mealtime was treasured. It was very important. That was where you shared your, the most quality time you had with the people you appreciated the most. And Jesus shared this with His own, with His disciples. And yet, those who broke bread with Him would turn their backs on Him. And one would do so in a way that is beyond the pale, Judas himself. And he would, in short order, earn his 30 shekels by betraying the Lord of glory. This idea of turning the heel, or uh, flashing back quickly to Psalm 41, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me is is an idiom that's also uh, difficult to translate. But the idea, the, uh, the term heel in the original language is closely connected with betrayal. And there's some association as well with Genesis 25, 26, where uh, Jacob and Esau are actually born. And Esau, or, uh, Jacob is, is holding on to Esau's heel in his birth. And the, the idea is to turn the heel, is, is to betray the closest of friend or relative. It's to use the opportunity of that relationship to your deceitful advantage. Take advantage of someone. And so the significance of bread helps us understand the weight of the sin that is represented in Judas' own betrayal. It also helps us recognize the power of Christ's blood to redeem. Because Judas wasn't the only one to betray Christ. Christ prophesied that Peter himself would betray him three times, deny him three times, if you will. Yet repentance was found by Peter, by God's gracious mercy extended to him. Thank the Lord for this, that even betrayers like you and I can be saved because of the power of the broken body that was actually despised by Judas, but is appreciated by all who find in it their salvation. That leads us to the last point of the significance of bread. This Broken bread would illustrate, as you know, Christ's broken body. In verse 26, the significance of this item of food comes to the surface again. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in this sense, the cup and the bread represented a new covenant which was being established for all time, for eternity in fact. And there is nothing more significant than uh, that, that we can think of to attach to some of these pictures than that which will be broken and bruised and bled out for our salvation. And so bread, satisfy, or, uh, bread becomes symbolic of this event as well. Jesus, in so doing, he actually changes the uh, practice of the Passover to forever represent and commemorate his actual work. This moment was not just a fulfill, or it wasn't, uh, simply a practice of the Passover, a ritual, uh, you know, remembrance. But in fact, it was a new Passover because a new covenant had come and the bread takes on new meaning as Christ's own broken body and will forever, re- or, and will forever uh, uh, provide the reality of His salvation for all who partake in the true Passover following. Second major significant prophetic point this morning, it's a detail recurring in the text, is the significance of money. The significance of money is interesting, and again, this is one of those details that at first glance you may not think has much tied to it. Uh, after all, how important is bread, or you know, isn't money just the denomination of necessary evil you know, to facilitate trade and so on? Well, we find often in the Scriptures that these things take on more meaning as we consider, again, their prophetic significance. First of all, money is in view as we see an offering that is brought to prepare Jesus for burial. An offering for burial is recorded in verses 7 through 12. Last time we were in Matthew 26, this was our text. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of what? Very expensive ointment. 
So the picture of money here quantifies the uh, value of what she's about to pour out. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. We find that uh, this, dis- this attitude of the disciples was represented in Judas, who really had a heart that was self-serving, that motivated him to uh, cry out with this objection. And that's in another gospel. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, <coughs> Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. I think a secondary point can be made as we think about this passage. Where this woman's treasure was, there her heart was also. We see that axiom in Jesus' own teaching. She took it to heart. Yes, she knew the value, monetarily speaking, of this very expensive ointment in this alabaster flask. And that is why she brought it to Christ. She also knew that it was of the highest virtue to bestow on him glory, honor, and praise. And any secondary thing took such a lesser seat that there was an eternal chasm in between the virtue of, you know, supposedly caring for the poor and glorifying Christ. That is to say, there is no good work if Christ is not glorified. And there is no good expenditure of money if Jesus is not our Lord. There is no substitute for honoring Him with all our means and all we are and all we own. I'm a little interested in economics even though I'm no good at math. So I sometimes listen to economic theory and you know, that which money represents and how it's used in culture. And the reason it fascinates me is for this. Uh, it's because I, I believe that money quantifies values. How a society spends its money, saves its money, uses its money... It really puts, it, it's an objective measure of where their heart is. Where their treasure is, there their heart will be also. And at this time, we see that Judas' heart was not with the Lord. We see that it was for himself, especially when he says, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Negotiating at the cost of the life of his master for 30 measly pieces of silver. Uh, his own betrayal of the Lord of glory. We see in this passage that the significance of money represents something deep, much deeper indeed. The heart condition of each who stand before Christ and are judged changed by an awareness of who He truly is and their surrender to His Lordship or instead it brings out their sin. The worst things in, in, in the depths of us that we so cling to because we do not cling to Christ. Now this cost of betrayal, significance of money comes to the fore and the cost of betrayal as well. I mentioned just a moment ago that 30 pieces of silver was the cost of betrayal. That was the sum that Judas negotiated for Jesus to be delivered over to the nefarious forces. This is interesting indeed. Again, it has prophetic significance. We turn back to Exodus 21. You don't need to turn there necessarily. But if you do uh, want to go to another verse... For cross-reference, head to Zechariah 11. Let me read this one verse from uh, Exodus 21, 32 while you're turning there. It says, If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. If the ox gores a slave or male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. It is interesting to note that in this code, in the law, that we see the cost or the price of restitution for a slave was 30 pieces of silver. I don't find it to be any mistake at all that this was the sum that the Pharisees suggested they allocate in return for the betrayal of Christ. Christ was nothing more than a slave to them. A slave to their own ambitions and endeavors. He was nothing. They spit upon Him. They despised him. He was crushed underneath their feet, they thought, and he deserved no place next to them, their superior understanding and rule of the people. We have that note in the, in the context of the Scriptures. We also have this in Zechariah that further expounds 
some of these truths. We see again the messianic, uh, messianic truths and prophecies coming to the fore as they are delivered to us. Notice, for instance, in verses 10 through 14. And I took my staff named Favor. There's two staffs. They were symbolic. One was called Union. One was called Favor. And these symbolized God's intentions, His grace upon the, un- or, or upon the existence of Israel as a state in good standing with the Lord. And as each staff is broken, it therefore represents judgment. And so we see this second staff, Favor, referred to in verse 10. It says, I took my staff, Favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. So this is the... Uh, the, the prophet is declaring to the wayward people, give me, your wa- or give me my wages. In other words, what he's asking them is, tell me how much you think I'm worth. What value do you assign to me and thereby to the word of God prophesying among you? They weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. And the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now this language of judgment, assigning a value, and therefore revealing the condition of the heart of the people is very instructive. Jesus had prophesied, as we read before, Matthew 24, on into 25, judgment upon the people who would reject Him because they didn't assign to Him His proper value. You see, Judas was just a representative among most of the multitudes who rejected Christ, who He was, the value of His teaching, and the fact that in Him alone were the words of life. And so as they did this, There was a staff that was broken over them as it were. And they could expect judgment in the near future. And it came. It came with a vengeance. Now what happened through the course of the events? Whatever happened to the money, you might ask? Well, you may be familiar with this, but in Matthew 27, Judas is filled with remorse. It says his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And I would just insert this note in thus fulfilling Zechariah chapter 11, what we just read. God commanded the prophet to throw that silver into the temple. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field. There's your potter reference as well. It's a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then he was fulfilled, and then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So add to the witness of Zechariah, another old covenant prophet, Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. The significance of money is profound indeed. There is fulfillment in the price negotiated for Jesus' betrayal, and even in what happened with the money. There is fulfillment of old covenant prophecy down to detail, That is fascinating indeed. Again, I mentioned in the opening of this message, these events would appear chaotic and unplanned by any measure to the casual or ignorant observer. But to those who could see through the eyes of prophecies of old, every single thing that God had prophesied down to the detail of what would happen to the money that was the cost of betrayal of Christ, everything was fulfilled. Amazing indeed. The significance of money is seen in the offering for burial that is presented to Jesus where the woman basically pours out her fortunes on Christ. It's seen in the cost of betrayal where this negotiated sum illustrates the attitude and heart of the people towards Christ who are in rebellion and despise Him. 
And finally, we see it in the purchase of the field of blood, the potter's field, and what eventually happened with the money, thus fulfilling prophecy. This leads me to my final point this morning. Prophetically significant detail recurring in the text. We covered bread, we covered money, finally sacrifice. In order for the feast of Passover to unfold and take place, there needed to be a sacrifice that was purchased, there was a preparation of the sacrifice, and then there was the obedience, the fulfillment of that event. These three things were happening as Christ was approaching the cross in Matthew 26. And we see them symbolized in the text. First of all, a purchase of sacrifice. This overlapping with our previous point, at a cost to themselves, uh, people would, as I mentioned, buy an animal that they would use to present them to the priests who would uh, take that animal, that animal would be slaughtered, and their typified would be the judgment that their sin deserved. And that animal would be expensive. Why? Because it was to be without spot or blemish. It was to be the best among the flocks. And so they would take a large sum of money, something that represented a real sacrifice of their own wealth and well-being, and then they would purchase an animal that represented the best of the flocks, and then that would be offered. In the picture of the woman with the alabaster flask, we can almost see something of this idea as she pours out her expensive anointment on Christ, her expensive ointment on Christ Himself. This act is similar to the act that would take place among the faithful who bought the best sacrifice they could afford with that which was their own well-being. As she did so, she was doing something in preparation. Second point, purchase of the sacrifice. Secondly, the preparation of the sacrifice. And we read from Jesus' own lips what this was. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. In a sense, Jesus, as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God, was being prepared for His next redemptive act, His death and burial, His crucifixion. Truly I say to you, Jesus then says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I find it interesting in the text that as preparations continue, specifically for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, followed by the Passover, that a lamb really isn't mentioned. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus in verse 17, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? We see no mention of lamb. At my time, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at, at your house with my disciples and so on. We can assume that a lamb was probably involved. But for the sake of the record here, there, although there is no lamb ex, uh, explicitly mentioned by way of an animal, there is a lamb explicitly mentioned by way of Christ. You see, in the text there is a shift from the focus from the symbol of old to the substance that is Christ. Christ is the sacrifice that is being prepared for the ultimate of Passovers, and upon His slaughter will be the freedom of His people and the absorption of the wrath of God for their sin. And this is the shape and the intent, I believe, as we see the prophetic significance of what is going on here. There is actually preparation for Christ to Himself be sacrificed. The disciples are preparing this Passover, and Jesus is actually redefining its terms. What does He do? Does He say, oh, here's the Lamb that allows the sin to pass over the house? No, He takes the cup, He takes the body, He breaks it, and He says to them, take, eat, this is my body, not this is the Lamb. Take this cup, and when He had given thanks, He said, drink of it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, not this is the blood of the Lamb that reminds us of Him passing over. This is my body, this is my spilled blood, that allows for the Passover of all your sins for all time, for all who are in me. It is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. There is a purchase, there is a preparation, and finally there is fulfillment. As this page of history is turning, it has been anticipated for millennia. 
as we remarked in Exodus 12, for all generations, it was to be a fixture among God's people that these certain ceremonies would take place and festivals would be a part of their culture so they did not forget that there was a day coming that would fulfill them. And then in that fulfillment, it would continue forever as they remembered their Messiah and His work on Calvary. This is what's taking place before us in the text. Jesus tells us in our last verse in our text this morning, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And he is demonstrating here that there is a significant change in history taking place. In other words, there will not be the Passover such as you've known it before. There will now be communion, the Lord's table, and a remembrance of my work on Calvary such as you will know it in just mere hours. This redefining of the future forever was in the power of Christ and His sovereignty both to proclaim and to accomplish. The Son of Man and the Son of God is inaugurating in this act that was in, of Passover fulfillment and by the work that will shortly follow in His going to Calvary. He is inaugurating the sin-forgiving covenant in His own blood. And He will soon be exalted in His work to the right hand of the Father and there He will receive His kingdom. And for all who trust Him for salvation, they will be the rewards of His suffering. I hope this morning, if you can count yourself as a reward of His suffering, that our look into the text today helps you and me appreciate more of the price that was paid to earn our salvation. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank You that You have granted to us, Lord Jesus, the precious revelation of Yourself and Your work of redemption in the pages of Scripture. I pray, Lord Jesus, as we have considered Your Gospel today and the meaning of these events, that You would make them meaningful to us. I pray that those of us who have children, Lord, would take up the call according to the commandments of old to teach them, Lord, in Your body and blood what happened on that glorious evening. Lord, that fateful day, by some measures, turned out to be the absolute uh, amazing.